Trey, you and I decided to do something a little different today. One of your very good friends and my very good friends, Dr. Michelle McClellan, and I had a brief exchange on Facebook, and Michelle had a really interesting uh, observation. So I don't want to put words in her mouth. I would like to introduce Dr. Michelle McClellan, who's nice enough to take time out of her day to come join us on the Translate Your Doctor podcast. Michelle, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Michelle, a brief bit of background. You and I met through Trey, actually. You and Trey trained together at, at Texas Tech for medical school. Is that right? Correct. And y'all, were y'all in the same graduating year? Is that right? We were, and we were friends. Yes. And you and I met through Trey. You and I hit it off. I would argue you and I are actually uh, closer friends than, <laughs> than you and Trey. I think that personally and professionally. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's give the people just a brief synopsis. So you, how did you left Texas Tech, and then where'd you end up now? What, what sort of medicine are you practicing now? So let's see, I graduated with Trey in 2014 from Texas Tech. I actually stayed for the family medicine program in Amarillo with Texas Tech. And I don't know if you've ever been to West Texas, but it's dry, desert, and brown. And my now wife and I, my wife was from that area, and I had spent five years in that area. And we said, where can you get rivers, mountains, and the beach all in the same place? And so we almost exclusively looked at jobs in the Pacific Northwest and some in Central Texas as well that I didn't have as much fun interviewing for. So we ended up out here just north of Portland in Washington State, I should say. I had a funny experience the other day, which led to today's uh, podcast. Me. I like to be a little cheeky. I like to be a little controversial. I'm not having a good day unless I'm rattling somebody, getting somebody worked up. So I posted on Facebook, only a <laughs> fraction of the businesses in healthcare consider the patient their true customer. Most companies would rather sell to your employer, insurer, doctor than sell to you. The patient's experience comes second. You'd be surprised at how many doctors think of the insurance company as the customer and put the patient's needs second. She had a lot of thoughts on it and she and I uh, traded some messages and you were nice enough to couch it by calling yourself a devil's advocate. And there's a great line here that we can expand on. And what you said is, Patrick, I work in primary care and the place where I work caters to everything the patients want here and we can't keep physicians to save our lives. So my proposition was Patients come second. That's my like controversial statement. And Michelle McClellan, Dr. Michelle McClellan said, that's foolish. Where I work, patients come first. And really, like even with that, it's it's challenging. It's difficult. Do you want to expand on that on that statement? Yeah. And of course, that's a very simplified version of the conversation we had then and from then to now. But I just I work for a facility where I think appropriately we control or try to control for some of the influence that insurance companies have. And I work for an HMO. And so most of the things are internal. And so as a primary care in this in this group, that's not something I really have to worry about. I, we have a financial assistance program. We have a lot of Medicaid patients that everything's paid for already. We, the one thing I think that you and I agreed on is the schedule of the day is still very much what pays for the expenses of the facility, et cetera. But overall, who I work with, I almost never hear, is that gonna be paid for? That is not 
we don't function that way. That being said, we have a facility that works off of a formulary. And some of those things that you're talking about are kind of already innately built into our system. But we can get other things if they fail medications or trials and, and et cetera. So my initial discussion was less true treatment plans and more that emotional component of we respond to your every need. And, and that aspect leads to quite a bit of physicians leaving because that leads to more phone calls, more telephone encounters, more emails, more, why couldn't you call me back on the same day? More, I'm only going to talk to my doctor. I refuse to talk with anyone who's covering for you. More, I'm going to walk in and you're going to take care of me no matter what, because I pay to be here. And that is both valid, but also very difficult to deal with on a logistics side. So I, I love the mental outlook for physicians. Like we shouldn't be prioritizing what gets reimbursed. We should be prioritizing low cost options that are easily accessible to patients. And we should pr be pri prioritizing what their needs are, but there are limitations and logistics that also have to be taken into account. So that was, I think, where our conversation had gotten to when you asked me to be on the podcast. Would you agree? Absolutely, yes. So. We'll take a half step back and then Trey, I want your input here. So my assertion came from in my background as a practice administrator working on the hospital side, which is one of the things that makes American healthcare incredibly unique is that every insurer is a little different in what they pay for. And they act as advocate in quotes for the patient. The patient, the healthcare is so complicated. Patients can't keep up with what's what, what needs to be paid for. Don't trust us as your insurance company. We'll decide. And by what the way, gets. never find what the cost of something is ever. So right. just right. trust us. That's right. Just trust us. Just trust us. And and what and that creates this complicated dynamic because a, a patient may want a certain type of treatment. The a physician may say, yeah, that seems like a reasonable form of treatment. But if if that third party, that middle party, the insurance company, doesn't agree to pay for that treatment, even if the physician and the patient agree, then that that is a um, that is a barrier. So that's where I was coming from in that post. I've certainly framed it without without all that context. A little bit to get a rise out of people to start the sort of conversation that led that led here. I, I love the frame, especially because I, I think that there's a there's a, a huge exploration that we could have around how different parts of the country approach different uh, approach healthcare. Yes. And you're and you're in a part of the country, and you happen to work uh, in a facility that has a very integrated model, and and has I think there's a health plan associated, and there's all of these different things. You mentioned an HMO, which means that there's sort of a, a an in network and out of network component, a, a closed model, a closed ecosystem for those patients that has a trade off as well. Uh, I love that perspective that that you don't feel that. What I heard from you is. Patrick, I feel like my patients have the resources they need. And if, if I need to get my patient something, I can get that to them. And that, sure, I'd probably see a couple more patients a day than I wish I wish I had to, but that's life. Every profession on the planet, you're making trade-offs and you're probably doing things that you don't 100% want to do, but I wouldn't call that a, a crisis. Is that is that a fair way to... That is a fair way. The one thing that I put out there was there's always the bell curve, right? There's the 5% of people at the top and the 5% of people at the bottom that will not get 
what they need because of financial aid, logistics. Sure. Again, it all goes back to logistics, right? Or maybe you make too much money, maybe you don't make enough money, maybe you get supplements otherwhere, you know, elsewhere, and because of that, it negates these guys. And there's always gonna be people who fall into those holes. But I would say, I feel very comfortable saying 90% of my patients, I can get what they need one way or another. So yes, feel good about that. Trey, you've obviously got a, a distinct perspective. Michelle practices on the outpatient setting. You practice on the inpatient setting. How would you contrast Michelle's experience in terms of the, the things that get in the way of you providing the treatments and therapies that you feel like are most important or most relevant for your patients? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we don't necessarily practice on opposite ends, but they could, they, they are quite disparate. Yeah. yeah, just mostly because my practice setting is that of a safety net hospital that services the mostly impoverished or underserved section of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Again, we've mentioned before, but Patrick and I are in Texas in the Dallas area and Michelle, as she's introduced, she's up in Washington state. And I think that's very good for what we're talking about because we talk about American healthcare. We talk about healthcare in the United States. And so it's useful to hear from people who are in different states. However, it, I think also highlights just how complex it can be when you're talking about the same United States, yet the systems could not be more different because what I struggle with on a daily basis for my patients is, can I get you the things that you need to have to have so that I don't see you again? And not because I don't want to see them again. In fact, that's been one of the main things, Patrick, you and I have really pushed us to do projects like Translate Your Doctor because one of the things that's dissatisfying about my practice as it stands is that I don't have to, don't get to have those relationships. However, if I'm seeing you again in the hospital, it's because either I or one of my partners or the system or whomever, sometimes the patient have failed and, and they're, they're back in the hospital. And so I think that th those are very different. However, the fee-for-service system that, that paying for services, individual or grouped, misaligns incentives. But it is almost just as much of a crisis, what Michelle was talking about in terms of physicians leaving in droves, that you can't hold on to physicians. Yeah. The, the healthcare system, again, Michelle, you weren't here for the first episode, or maybe perhaps it was the second, but we, we basically introduced that the concept that the healthcare system is meant to facilitate physician and patient. That's it. If you want to boil it down very simply, that's all the system is meant to do. Now we can talk about like what it's meant to do politically, societally, culturally, but like in the end, like the healthcare system distills down to a provider interacting with a patient. And I would argue the patient would define the healthcare system as my relationship with the physicians, the providers that are on my care team. Like that's the healthcare system from the mm -hmm. patient standpoint. Yeah. Yes. And Trey, for me, not to interrupt you. So no. Yeah, yeah. But for me, on the outpatient side and in rural America, mm -hmm. it's not the doctor and the patient. It's right. every system we have that can possibly help the patient, whether that's me, my MA, the LPN, my RN, or my social worker, or my pharmacist team, or my nurse practitioner who covers me on the weekends, or blah, blah, blah. blah. 
with the patient, right? Like a thousand percent, thousand percent things that we've introduced and want to continue to pursue because you're exactly correct. But just for simplicity's sake, in terms of like relationship and defining the healthcare system, which basically just meant to provide like, how do you get this service, which is you're ill, you have questions. It may not even be illness if we're talking about obstetrical care that you need to interface with the healthcare system somehow. And that system is meant to facilitate that. And if, and what we've noticed is that that's growing, that that gulf is growing. And your example is fascinating. And I don't want to get lost in it because that's not what this episode is meant to be, but it's fascinating because we've been talking about Patrick and I from Translate Your Doctor. We want to help the patient. We want to help the patient that the system is pushing the physician away from the patient, but you're describing that the patients are chasing the physicians and they feel pressured by the system because access is not an issue. And that pressure feels like it's, it's manifesting in being overwhelmed that I have to make these calls that I have to deliver care right away. And I'm only one person, at least that's the sense that I'm hearing from you. Don't let me speak for you. And that's a fascinating problem in itself because despite it being the other end, it's still manifesting the same thing, which is this gulf is widening. There's so many ways we can split this because rural versus urban healthcare is very different, right? So when I said in that message to Patrick that we can't keep doctors to save our lives, well, probably 50% of the reason why we can't keep doctors is we're an hour from Portland. Like we have a movie theater and maybe like five good restaurants in town. So getting MDs to work up here, let alone live up here is difficult to begin with. Then you add the fact that rural America is complex and elderly. I mean, really. Mm-hmm. So each of your patients that's on your panel, like, you know, I was telling Patrick, my panel, I have a certain number of people. And then my facility, based on my ongoing updated problem list through Epic, assigns those patients and how frequently they're in the hospital and stuff. Anyways, they have an acuity index. So I have a certain number on my panel and then I have my acuity index and it tells me kind of what my burden is. I don't like the word burden, what my responsibility is. And you know, the when you look at my friends who work in Vancouver or Portland, who have the same number of people on their panel, their acuity index is much lower. Meaning they're less seeing, sick, meaning less sick is what you're less saying. Sick. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. seeing younger patients, less conditions, and they're right in the middle of a metroplex. So if their patient has a problem, they go 15 minutes across town my patients drive an hour and a half mm-hmm. and they are not happy about that. And and so, so much of my interaction with the patient is modulating expectations. Again, getting access, transport, huge. But, but what ended up happening is as a whole, we try to meet patients where they're, where they are, but that's created the situation where there's that expectation on our patient's side that they should be able to walk in that day because I pay for my insurance. Right, and I should right. be able to talk to my doctor that day or next day. And I don't wanna to talk to anyone else. And and that's like, I, I don't know, and this is something Patrick and I talked about too, I, I don't know where the correct line to draw is. Because for me, especially with the current medical system, there will never be enough walk-in same-day visits, never. And so is that a real expectation that patients should have, especially if you're not having an acute problem? If you're having a, my chronic pain is still bad and I wanna talk to someone about it today versus someone who's having an asthma exacerbation, like kind of making sure that as a culture, we're, we're telling people, 
where's the right place to go and what the right timing for those visits are, what the right feedback is. It's just so, it's such a complex topic. And sorry, I started breaking it down. No, Michelle, this is perfect. Michelle, honestly, because this is what you're hitting on. You're saying like, I wish there was something out there that could tell. Well, guess what Translate Your Doctor is here for? (laughs) That's like why we called it that. I mean, I, it, I'm not trying to to just self-promote us all the heck, but it's really true because yeah. I think that both you and I are describing exactly what what Patrick and I have talked about for years, which is that despite a system maybe working for itself, because you describe, again, access is not an issue. 90% yes, of your patient pants. Absolutely is an issue. But-, but, but, but you know what I mean, like in terms of it being paid for. Yeah. 90% of your patients, you said it, 90% of your patients, they can get, the services they need. Now, is it difficult? Is it logistically hard? Blah, blah, blah. For my side, yes, people are underserved, but they can always come to the hospital. They'll get the care that they need. They get access to specialists. They get cutting edge uh, care and so on. Like they get that. Temporarily. Temporarily. Exactly. And so, which I, and I would say for you as well, right? We only have the moments we have with our patients. And so like you hope that the system when that patient leaves the clinic or leaves your hospital or just leaves your line of sight, will continue to care for them and execute on that because you already hit on this, which is I, I can't see everybody in a day. I can't see everybody in a day. Like what and what is enough? So am I going to say 12 is enough? Am I going to say 15 is enough? I'm going to say 20 is enough because guess what? There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients yeah. that you could personally see, not to mention the millions in the country. So it's not a numbers issue per physician. So then becomes a question of, okay, well, like what feels enough? That's a personal thing. We don't want to discuss that, I think, necessarily this episode. But then the second part is, okay, well, how can we address the system? And I'm not going to necessarily speak for, for Patrick's side of it, but when we talk about this, Translate Your Doctor is meant to be like working on other things so that outside of that clinic that you see your patient, outside the hospital in which I see my patient, they can still get care. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we're kind of branching into that. Patrick and I have been talking about like what y'all want and whether it's a replacement system or a supplemental system or something, like you said, something to maybe your doctor can't see you on the same day, but could you have another place to go to access education and a provider who can patch holes that you're not necessarily getting? But I know that's kind of a whole different direction. That's fine. That's that- no, I understand. And and this gets to what I think we would talk about. Sorry, Patrick. <laughs> it's just that, like, how can we incentivize doing that? Who's going to pay for that, right? Because you can have the ideas to, to improve the quality, but, like, does fee-for-service allow it? And, Patrick, you take it from here because I, I know we want to, like, rein it. Uh, back to our discussion. Yeah, the the meta theme that we're covering is what's wrong with healthcare, and the the filter for that is what is blocking the physician patient relationship. And my thesis is how we pay for healthcare, the incentives behind that, and the fact that that factors into physician decision making. I think physicians would make different decisions, different care decisions, if they knew anything for the patient would be paid for. We'd see more group medical appointments. We would see more behavioral health prescriptions. We would see different types of things getting prescribed. If, if physicians knew that the patient could get paid for it and if the physician's time was valued differently. Because I think there's two sides of this. The how, what gets paid for for the patient, right? If the patient has to pay out of pocket, the patient's less likely 
to, to pursue a certain therapy. But also, if the physician is not compensated appropriately, the physician is less likely to spend their time and energy on that. How is a physician's time valued? The physician's time, a physician who spends six to 10 years in medical training, building this beautiful, big brain full of medical knowledge, their, visit, their, their time is valued in these 30-minute visit increments. What Trey and I talk about is this notion of like physicians are, you're not held accountable to your outcomes. I mean, sure, yes, you are. But to some extent, it's how many 20-minute increments of time can you fit into a day? If you can fit 25 in, 30, then you're, based on the incentive structure that exists, you're a good doctor, a good, efficient doctor. Well, hold on. What if I'm spending more time getting to know my patient? What if I'm sitting down, holding the patient's hand, and doing all the things that Trey and I discussed in episode two around what makes a good doctor. All the things that make a good physician are the things that your physician is not getting paid to do. No one is compensating or valuing your physician being more compassionate, being taking more time, moving slower, looking at your chart in advance of the day. Those are bone it. Your physician being ethical, Trey and I had a whole diatribe about this. Your physician being ethical and taking the Hippocratic Oath, like seriously, that's like a la mode. Like you, you, got, you better like, you got to pay extra for that. You, you may not be getting that at baseline from the average from the average physician and and that's something that i think is like endemically troubling is that i think we lose michelle the michelle mcclellans of the world as physicians i i think you're perfectly happy and and you're you're doing wonderful work out there and i hope you feel fulfilled doing it but we lose the trey certishes and the michelle mcclellans because our incentive structure doesn't actually incentivize you to be a great doctor so i have two things i want to say but first of all what just to go off what you're saying you burn out eventually and that actually, where I am, that actually did start happening to me. And the facility, the group that I'm in, luckily I was able to downcode. I, I think we talked about this. I work 0.9 FTE, which basically means I work four days. And then there's a half day where I check in on my in-basket once for an hour just to make sure everything's covered. And so instead of working five days a week and then still working, I mean, because I work four days, right? And in those four days, I work an average of 52 to 50. 56 hours. So, and the average family medicine physician in America works 60 to 65 hours if they work full-time on a regular basis. And so obviously some weeks with less, some weeks more, but yeah, the burnout is, and of course there are some right now that say, why are we calling it burnout? We should be calling it moral injury. And I think that goes very closely to what you're saying about not valuing doctors who are compassionate and who have a sense of integrity and ethic in how they approach treating the patients. When you feel rushed and when you feel overworked, when you feel overwhelmed, you either get morally injured that you're in a system that doesn't allow you to be the type of provider you want to be, or you downcode or you quit, or you move to a different train of being a physician because you can't be yourself. I, mean, I, I agree with everything that you said, Michelle, and it, breaks my heart. I mean, it really does. When you describe your struggles personally with the system and then feeling as though you're getting, again, morally injured, burnout, I somewhat chuckle at these words because they're becoming they're becoming meaningless to many folks and many physicians who hear the word burnout roll their eyes and so on because for other reasons, that's a different episode. But nonetheless, you're feeling and experiencing those emotions. And what was your solution? What was offered to you? Well, we'll have you see fewer patients on fewer days, half day, 
it sounds like, you know, you had time bought out. And that's what I hear consistently about my colleagues if they're experiencing these symptoms or just these, these experiences. They're saying, I want better relationship. I want a better system. And they're being told, well, like you can always work less. Yeah. You can always have time bought out. And, and that might be useful in the short term and as a Band-Aid. But my contention has always been, right, but that's not doing anything to, to fix the, the stimulus. Well, yeah. I mean, let's get real. We're down coding so that we're working a work week. Like I'm still working on Fridays or Saturdays right. or Sundays. I'm still working on my day off, but now I have time to do the work that I couldn't do because I was sitting in front of a patient adding more right. work. And just so, back to fee for service, yes. <laughs> or at least, or, or at least the contention that Patrick's putting forth anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and of course, every other recommendation is well, you need to meditate or you need to go to therapy or you need to start some medication or something. It's it's always like, oh, you are just not tolerating this well and you need to do something to increase your, what is that? Resilience, your resilience. resilience. <laughs> your resilience. <laughs> Which is also becoming trite. <laughs> that one's a big eye roll. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's also, the thing I talk to my wife about all the time is like, as much as resilience is an eye roll, there, like when you are in the middle of burnout, your ability to be, be resilient is zero. And so some of those things are actually helpful. Meditation is actually helpful. Going to a therapist is definitely helpful. But I'll tell you this, I went to therapy when I started working here because it was overwhelming for me. I went to therapy and uh, my therapist listened to everything and basically was like, so is there anything else that you want to talk about? Because work is better as long as everything else is good. And I was like, that doesn't help me. <laughs> you know? Right, right, Michelle. No, I think that's a really good point. Like we are making light of very credible evidence-based ways to combat moral injury, burnout, trauma, whatever it is, meditation, exercise, time with family, healthy outlets. Th those are real. What we're making light of, or again, what I make light of is that the intent with which people suggest those things is very, again, it doesn't get to the crux or the root cause of why you're experiencing and feeling those emotions. I think it's valuable to see how connected all these things are. And I do think, Trey, that we should spend time on burnout and on physician yeah. sustainability. Mm -hmm. The, I think patients it's important for patients to understand like what goes through the minds of their physician. And part of what we're trying mm -hmm. to do here, Trey, is to like translate both ways, right? Mm -hmm. Any patient that finds a physician that is uh, compassionate, empathetic, that, that moves slow, that takes the time they need, that physician is a blessing. No, your physician is not getting paid for that. Your, that, your physician is doing that despite every incentive being directed against those, against those qualities. No one likes to feel like a sucker. And the challenge that I've seen with physicians going slower is 100% going slower means less money, means getting paid less. And that's really hard to embrace. Even if that's better for you, there's something hard about feeling like, and or I, I either have to choose to get compensated what I think I'm worth or to prioritize my mental well-being. Why well, can't I have- Especially when you're $200,000 in debt, right? Mm -hmm. 
Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you have people to provide for. And there's a certain sense of keeping up with the Joneses, right? There's a people who go into medicine are competitive by nature. That varies from specialty to specialty, Mm -hmm. person to person. But largely speaking, we're type A people who are competitive. We wanted to, we wanted to help people, right? But the, all these personality traits that, that filter people into medicine, they still stay with us when you're practicing. And so there, there's all these things that align to feel like, yes, I could slow down on this treadmill, but I feel like I'm going to fall off if I do, even though you have all the power. Well, you don't have all the power, but you do have some to be like, I, I don't want to see that. I, I want to speak up. However, the system as we're going to discuss, just does not facilitate that full control. You can't say, well, I'm going to, I, I'm going to define my FT or my full-time equivalent at, at 80%. Like, I'm going to just going to say it's going to be 80%. The system you work for, Michelle, is probably going to be like, well, I mean, we're, that's not what we're offering to you. You can go elsewhere. I mean, we can replace you. Hopefully they would recognize you as a fantastic, fantastic physician and would say, uh, Dr. McClellan, we'll keep you. You know? I have the benefit of working in a small town where we're already three full-time physicians down. So right. that's, I have some negotiating power there as that sort of, with that sort of setup, but you're, you're totally right. If I was in downtown Portland, they'd be like, yeah, okay, thanks. So, so I think every patient needs to understand that the bend of your physician, regardless of if it's your family practice physician, a specialist, the bend of your physician is going to be towards providing the sorts of care and support for you that they get compensated for, right? The Rather than prescribing you, the incentive for your physician when it's time for you to get a medication refill is for you to come into the clinic so that the physician can get compensated for the work that goes into giving a prescription. I saw that all, all the time at my family practice clinic, that this notion of giving free care away. Even if it's valuable, efficient, and helpful, the physician feels like they're not getting compensated or they're not getting supported in providing that support. And that's what's so challenging is, especially for folks that are on certain performance metric models, like RVU models, which is something both of you are familiar with, the average patient won't be familiar with. So everything bends towards, if it has zero RVUs associated with it, I'm less likely to do it. If it has 100 RVUs associated with it, I am more likely to do it. One of the unfortunate truths in healthcare, but again, that comes from the gatekeepers. The people that assign RVU values are, by design, associating certain care patterns with with providers and to some extent it doesn't matter if your provider is really into acupuncture if acupuncture does not have an associated rvu balance with it your provider is from my perspective less likely to to prescribe those sorts of therapies and so patients need to understand that going in that if there's something that you feel like is an appropriate therapy for you you may have to bring that into the conversation or you, you put in the referral, but they either are on, like in my world, a high deductible plan where the first 10 visits they'd have to pay full for anyways, or it's just not a covered benefit at all. And I can put in the referral and it's going to be denied anyways. And then you still got to go pay out of pocket. So just back to that gatekeeping, the, the, it's understandable that that exists in our system. That, that's just, we don't have a magic wand. That is absolutely one of those challenges that exists for the average patient is that the phys- it's unfortunate that the physician has to think about those things. Before you've even mentioned it to the patient, you have to think, well, I know they're on this high deductible plan. Maybe I don't even bother prescribing this, even if I think it'll be helpful because it won't be paid for. Patient will have to pay out of pocket for it. 
Can I just say one thing though? Absolutely. Sorry. <laughs> so as someone, I grew up with a small business in my basement, like, you know, the idea again of the logistics of any business, the reality is there have to be lines drawn somewhere, right? And so then are the lines drawn poorly? Are the gatekeepers doing a bad job? Or yes. are hold they on to that for two minutes? Well? Hold, hold on to that for two minutes, and because because I think well, I think my answer to that will allow fervent discussion about, about that. <laughs> well, we've been going on. It's been a wonderful discussion so far. We're blessed, Michelle, to have you here, and we're absolutely going to have you back for another for probably three more hours of of dialogue. <laughs> I am curious because I'm very interested in this uh, and the answer to this question. What are the sorts of things for both of you clinically, and I think patients would be interested, what are the things that if you had a magic wand, there were no gatekeepers, there were no restrictions, are there therapies, are there treatment protocols, are there things that you would be interested in exploring more with your patients that the current structures don't allow you to explore? I'd be interested in, in y'all's perspective as clinicians. Truly, when I reflect, I thought about this a long time. And honestly, what I came to, Michelle, and it's what you're talking about, which is the end product is how we define quality. Okay. I think about this problem a lot, not only in my personal practice, like because you come out, the reality is you come out of training and you're thrust into what's called an attending level position, which is just essentially you're an autonomous practitioner. You're the doctor. You're the one who's making all the choices. And uh, Patrick alluded to this earlier. There are quality metrics, but again, those are just as arbitrary often and can be manipulated for a variety of reasons. So you really have no sense of how you're doing as doctor. You don't have a, like your patients can like you, you feel like you have good relationships, you feel like you do good work, but in the end, do you, are you, again, are fewer people dying because they interact with you? Are fewer people suffering from, you know, chronic disease or having their acute issues taken care of or just being happier? spending more time with their family. That stuff well, is and just- I'm sure that's hard on your side too, on the hospital side where you're not seeing patients back. Exactly. It's, it's enormously difficult because the only time that you do see them back, either I have failed personally or the patient has or the system, again, like we've outlined before. And that, that in itself perverts my sense of what good quality would be. So regardless, that's on an individual level, but that extends that, that uncertainty of what quality is extends all the way up to a systemic level. And it, it influences how we define success in our studies and our evidence and why we use certain medications and recommend certain tests and do certain surveillance. And that is contentious. Ask any doctor, right, to, to debate a paper. And so for me, my answer is if I had a magic wand, what would I do? It would honestly be to create gigantic cohorts of patients that are classified by race, gender, ethnicity, age, chronic disease group, similar to the Framingham Heart Study, right, which is this famous decades old study now that basically just took a bunch of people and then it just watched them over time and see what's happened to them and their heart outcomes. That's simply putting it. But the benefit of something like this, of a huge cohort and following these people over time allowed people to follow that data and look into it and be like, oh, well, what happens if you smoke? What happens if you exercise or don't exercise and make inferences? And then subsequently decades later, come to the conclusion of, it's good to do these things. It, this doesn't matter. This hurts you to do this thing. Because just like you were saying, Michelle, moments ago, like 
what are we like, what are we trying to do? What is success? What is quality? I mean, that's how I took it anyways. That's the thing I come back to because if we're going to pay physicians for services, we don't have to, right? We could, we don't have to use fee for search, but if we're going to pay physicians for something, somebody has to decide that, right? Somebody has to, you, you, someone has to legislate it. Somebody has to write the law. Somebody has to enforce the law yeah. and somebody has to pay the money and so on. That, that's just the reality of the system. So in my mind, I would want that to be based on quality and we can talk about what that means. And that's what I want to like kick off to y'all. But if I had my magic wand, it would be, you got to figure out how you, that quality is. And the only way you do that is pay attention to people over periods of time and see what happens to them. I don't know if that's a satisfying answer though. Well, and I think it's, it's funny. So being, I, I mentioned this before, being the family medicine, being the primary care provider, and as internal medicine, I'm sure you feel this too. Like you said, there are algorithms of evidence-based medicine for almost every disease, right? And I, they work for people maybe, I don't know, 60% of the time. And that other 40%, they're back in your office looking you in the face asking for what to do next. And for me, I, I'm not going to pull out that randomized control trial and say, well, check, check, check. You already met all these things. I guess there's nothing left for us to do. You're just going to have to live with it. Go home. Now, sometimes that is the answer. I mean, that's the unfortunate thing. But, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of chronic pain here just to... Of course, of course. So, but you know, I mean, I'm the person they come to when the pain clinic just says, have you tried a higher dose of gabapentin? Go back to your primary care. And so I'm definitely finding myself reading more of the cohort-based stuff, of the case study stuff, uh, not stuff, science, yeah. Yeah. for ideas for these patients for whom RCT level agreement is not there. For example, everything COVID, right? There is no RCT Correct. data because it's too new. Correct. And I feel that way about, I mean, especially in women's healthcare, fibromyalgia, fibroids, endometriosis, these were all women's hysteria right. or you're anxious Correct. and you just need to go home and have an Correct. orgasm and you're going to be fine. And it's like, Correct. Now, of course, we know that that's just horrifically wrong. And so I, I just can't help but look at those patients for whom RCT level agreement is not helping and, Absolutely. and Absolutely. go from there. So, And a part of translate, and sorry, Patrick, I want to get your take on this, but like part of translation, right, of translate your doctor is that I, I'm going to favor RCTs. You're going to favor RCTs. Every doctor who even if they don't understand epidemiology and the true understanding of like biostatistics, it's been drilled into them enough. That they're going to be like, yeah, RCTs are important. They're the gold standard and so on. And that is true. Mm -hmm. But like things you're describing, you can't RCT life. And that's not meant to be a shirt. But what I mean to say is that if you want to understand how people are affected by life in various cohorts, you cannot randomize that. You can't control for those things, right? Because you, we don't understand enough of why it's not enough to pull vitamin C out of an orange and give that to somebody. And that's, that's just the same thing as eating the orange, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely not. We, we know that there are things we just don't know. And, and again, I speak to the students all the time, all the trainees that I encounter is that the unknown unknowns. I mean, it's just, there's so many. And as you wade into that pool and realize like how much is around you that we don't know, 
the only way you do it is watching people. It's empiricism. Yeah. It's where biology was centuries ago, but just literally looking at things and being like, oh, they do that. And they still do that now. Yeah. I always tell Lila that that medicine is like you have about 160 degrees of vision, right? Medicine, we have 90 and every test we have, every idea we have fits in that 90. And if you're somewhere else in the 360 degrees of the world, your disease doesn't exist and neither do the treatments for it because we don't see it. And so I liked your comment about the unknown unknowns, because like you said, it's a young science. So sorry, Patrick, we are. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. This is good. Uh, this is really interesting stuff. Y- y'all are firing even over my head. This is uh, wonderful. I, th- I want to be- think, Patrick, like, what do you think about I don't. I, I said my piece up front. I think that I don't have anything additional to add. I, I, I'm interested in y'all's uh, perspective on this, Trey. I really enjoyed your perspective on like cohorting, and and I think that we just have we have different sets of tools now, and that's interesting, right? What what can you do when you when you can do digital group medical appointments were difficult. Why? Is because it was really freaking hard to get patients to drive and all cram into a room together. You can do. 50-person group medical appointments now, just as easy as you can do 10-person, 5-person group medical appointments. And I think we haven't seen the, I think we've only started to see what all the different applications are. There's still not parity with virtual mm-hmm. visits, right? You're, some physicians will not prescribe controlled substances unless they can like, phys- like physically lay hands on you. And that's a barrier. Somehow that's going to change your mind on whether or not you're going to do it. I mean, especially on like for in my facility, we have opiate therapy plans and have to be signed every month. There's red, yellow and green. And that determines how often you have your drug screens and pill counts and all these things. And like, but if you're on an OTP, every prescription says plan 28, ask seven days in advance. Like when that refill comes through, I'm not asking for an appointment because you're already on a plan. I already know what it's for. I've met you, you peed in a cup for me, like move it on along, sign. Now, of course, if anything abnormal pops up, then you get an appointment with me. But yeah, that's, I totally feel that. Some of those things, Patrick, for me to say no to that, now that I'm practicing the way that I am, I'm just like, oh my God, that would be all I did all freaking day. That would just see person after person after person for prescriptions and why would I do that? I mean, it looks good on your visit counts. Looks great on the number of visits that you're getting uh, in a day. And I will never have a problem getting 20, 22, 24 patients a day. Never. Sure. You know, where I am, I'll tell you this too. So I've talked to a lot of different people. Trey, I don't know how you feel about this or how often you're actually in clinic. But so my panel is about 1,800 patients. And with my acuity index, it's about 2,300. And But the reason my number is so high is because at my facility, our pharmacy is attached and we have a pharmacy team. Mm. My social work is attached and we have a social work team. Like all these things are automatically fed in and there's algorithms that keep these things going. And there's a regional advice nurse network where if you call after hours, you're going to talk to a nurse. And if a nurse triages it and thinks you need to talk to a doctor, there's an on-call doctor. So like all those things get pulled off. You can walk in and see a nurse for a UTI and never see a doctor and still get antibiotics if the, if the UA looks appropriate. And so those things get plucked off, which is nice, except that leaves you with the most intense 20 a day of the disasters. And so that can be a little rough. I mean, not disasters because human beings going through a lot of basically course. and i think it's okay for you to say disaster just in the sense of that emotion like it, it, it we i don't think again 
I know you. I, I haven't seen you personally practice medicine. You'd like, but I can only imagine that you would never, ever feel that about your patient. Nonetheless, we still feel this pressure in the system. Like you still feel, yeah, like I like it's sometimes you just look forward to a simple problem. I mean, we're human. We want to solve problems. And like you're saying, if you're dealing in that 90, I'm going to use your example. If you're dealing in that 90 and then a patient walks in the door and then the next 10 patients walk in the door that are like back here outside of the 90, you're only going to feel that sense of, I don't know how to fix this problem. Yeah. And that is so fundamentally frustrating. It's going to be one of the core things that we are going to try and educate patients about with translation doctor, which is just like doctors are human. We yeah. want, we got into this to solve problems. When you bring us a problem that we can't outwardly solve, and we feel as though if we fail you from that first meeting and we, you're lost and you won't believe us anymore, that triggers in us this sense of insecurity. And that manifests as like, I don't want to see that person. Or like, I don't want to do that. When in reality, if you could just have a relationship and understand how traditionally medicine was, right? Because for a long, long time, people came up to us with problems and there was nothing to give them yeah. other than consolation. And you know what? That helps a lot of people despite us not providing solutions. Yeah. So it's well, a mix. I think, well, Trey, you and I have gone, we're going back years now talking about this, but you know, that patient relationship and, and creating an environment where you can comfortably say out loud to a patient, I don't know, or there is nothing that we can do. Like creating a relationship where you can get to the point to have that honest and frank conversation. And if they want to go see someone else more, like I support it, I'll find out who the best is to see for them. But but if you don't have that relationship established, you're right, there was one patient that I just see so clearly, so I'm sure there were more. There's one patient where I was behind, it was a bad day, I was overwhelmed, it was during that time when I decided to go start seeing a therapist. And it was one of those, I'm walking out the door, hey, one more thing, I'm already an hour behind, I already spent 40 minutes with you. Like, and I was not very nice to that patient in that moment, and I could have done it so much better. And she would have accepted it if I would have turned around and said, I'm so sorry, I'm out of time. She would have been like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, yeah, okay. But I didn't handle it well. And I called that patient multiple days later and I told her, I'm so sorry that I treated you that way and I hope you'll give me another chance. And her response to me was, because I know you and I know you care about my well-being, I will come back to you. But if I hadn't had that rapport already, she would have peaced out and never come mm. back to me. I mean, maybe not, but I wouldn't have yeah. come back. And so just having that, that relationship and that rapport, which is what primary medicine and internal medicine are mm. constantly striving for, makes all that difference too. But I also worry that like sometimes maybe I have great rapport, but I don't know what I'm doing, but I think that's still a little bit, what's that called? Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, yes. Exactly. That's great. Michelle, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, this will not be the last time that we talk. We're going to have you on again. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk about something that clearly you're, you're passionate about that you devoted your life to, which is taking great care of patients. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Trey, that was, that was great. It was an excellent conversation with, with Michelle and something that that's, can be somewhat challenging, but a really lively discussion all the same around these topics. Michelle's got a phenomenal perspective. She's clearly mm -hmm. very passionate. So really enjoyed being able to um, go into some of that 
what the barriers are for physicians, the hidden barriers. You say hidden curriculum sometimes, which is a term mm -hmm. I love. Mm -hmm. Hidden barriers, I think, exist because the patient tends to only have access to what's in the exam room and they don't have access to all the different incentives mm -hmm. and different things that impact physician decision making. Anything that you would you would leave patients with on this topic? Any any closing thoughts on you know, the the incentives that go into physician decision making and how physicians think about treatment plans and I think that the incentives and the system and stuff like that that we defined in the the sort of prologue to this episode will be sufficient. But what I will say that I thought was so crucial about this episode we just did with Michelle is that it's it's starting to get to the sort of crux of what translate your doctor is about, which is like really trying to translate what your doctor feels and is saying to you. And that can be as simple as what a medicine does. But I think that like Michelle was really hitting it emotionally, like what do physicians go through to take care of patients? What do they feel when they experience these systems? And how does that impact their ability to care for you? Because it's clear Michelle is a wonderful human being and an excellent physician. Can Did it sound like she could deliver the care that she wants to right now? It sounded like she's challenged, right? It sounded like yeah. she's really conflicted. She's had a great system. She outlined that. She's She cares about what she does. Even with all the great resources for mm -hmm. patients, there's this tension that exists because of, I think, the pressures that are on physicians. And, and I think we should do a separate episode just on just on that from the, with the within the context of a patient. But I think, yeah, she seems really challenged. And like, so are there ways, again, it's a relationship. It's a two-way street. We discussed the ethics, right, early on in this in terms of like ethical frameworks, and patient autonomy, and non-maleficence, all these big words, scary words. But basically, it just comes down to Medicine is shifting towards a two-way street, not a one-way from physician on high to patient on low. And as that happens, I think patients can be empowered to help their physician, to send stuff back the other way. And that strengthens the relationship, makes the physician feel more validated, in my opinion, diminishes burnout, okay, and just improves outcomes. I think it, it, it's just a really a virtuous cycle. And so I think that's honestly the big thing that I took away is that all the episodes we've had thus far have been getting sort of like kind of the mechanics of a healthcare system, the ethical frameworks, what makes a good doctor. But this one was, wow, there's a, like a flash of emotion, a flash of what it's like to be a physician and the challenges of, of the system on you. And that's what I take away from it. That's well said. That's really well said. All right. As always, we want to remind everyone to visit us at translateyourdoctor.com to see the slate of programs we have coming up. Please subscribe to whatever format you found this podcast. We make a video available of the podcast available on YouTube. Check out our Facebook page as well. A lot of different ways to engage with us. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank you all.